Amen. Do I even need to say you can be seated? Nope. Good. Fourth and fifth graders, you can head back. Uh, Missy is waiting for you right there by the lobby. Have fun. Behave. Good. All right. It's good to see you all, um, as Abby said. My name is Ben Peters, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to be here with you. Um, we've been in this series now, Am I My Brother's Keeper, My Brother's Keeper? We've been in it uh, for a few weeks now, and we've walked through Genesis, right? We walked through Genesis 1 and 2, and in Genesis 2, just kind of like a quick little recap, Genesis 2 is where we first see Yahweh attached to God, where God enters into this deeply relational, um, intimate relationship with his creation. And then we see kind of, uh, I don't know, these relationships function, how they function. We see Adam and Eve, we see Cain and Abel, um, and it leads us all the way up to a story that we are all very familiar with. We're going to be in Genesis 6 today. And uh, it's a story that even if you're a Christian or a non-Christian, my guess is you know this story. You know it well. Um, it's a story about a man named Noah, right? And he builds this ark and it takes him years and years to build this ark because God commanded him to. And then he fills it with animals and he escapes the flood. Did I get it? That's the story we know. It's a story that our kids that just exited and the kids in our kids' ministry right now, that they learn. Um, but here's the thing. It's, it's missing something. As I was diving into it, um, this was a hard sermon for me to write. I wrestled with this. I just want to be fully transparent of what my week looked like as I was diving into this. It was hard. In large part because we're not going to dive into the, the children's version of this. Because the missing, there's a missing part to this story that I wrestled with. It's the part where all of creation, that God wiped it off the face of the earth. I mean, the Genocide is hard enough, but when it comes to by the hands of God, um, man, it threw me in a tailspin. It was hard. And I didn't know what to do with it. I started to wrestle with it. I started to dive into chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and 9. I started diving into these chapters and studying them and recognizing that I was having a very hard time with it. And as I prayed about it, as I dove into it, there was one word that just kept coming up. There was a word that I just kept, God kept placing it. In every story that I read, in every study that I dove into, and the word was intent. The why of the story, the purpose of the story. Because there are questions about the, the story of Noah and the ark that while I, I think are interesting, I don't necessarily appreciate, okay? Because I don't think they get to the intent. I don't think they get to the why of the story. The why that the biblical authors intended us to be asking. You know, some of the questions that are interesting, you know, was it a local flood or was it a global flood? Um, what about dinosaurs? 
Like, I haven't been to the ark down in Kentucky, um, but there are apparently dinosaurs on there. Like, were dinosaurs on there? How did Noah and the family take care of a portable zoo? (laughs) How did they do this? How did they make sure the lions didn't eat the gazelles? How did they make sure, like, all of them lived in harmony on this boat? Interesting questions, but they're not ones that I necessarily appreciate because I don't think they get to the intent of what the biblical authors were trying to communicate and trying to convey to you and I. As I was wrestling with it, uh, a friend of mine, he shared this quote, and it's from a quote from biblical scholars Peter Enns and Jared Bias. They wrote a book, and it's called Genesis for Normal People, okay? And this quote really summarized why I was wrestling with it. The most familiar parts of the Bible are often the parts we have the hardest time reading through ancient eyes. And everyone is familiar with the story of the flood, Noah, the ark, animals marching on two by two, basically the lifeblood of every Sunday school class, flannel graph, and coloring page. Did the flannel graph get to some of you? (laughs) We suppose it can't be helped. After all, animals on a boat with a rainbow above seem friendly enough. Plus, the story comes with a nice lesson about God's faithfulness. Only it's not a children's story. And the way it is presented to children tames it to the point of distortion. We might want to read this story as a scientific account of the past, arguing whether it was a global flood or a local flood, or wondering if the extinction of dinosaurs can be chalked up to a lack of room on the ark. But none of these questions help us see the story as ancient Israelites would have seen it. That was the line. We tend to think of Bible writers as journalists, where they're writing down and they're marking down everything that they see, right? It's the what and it's the how, and we desire that proof and that certainty because we want the what and the how, which can lead us to ask us questions, to ask questions about the Bible that I don't believe the Bible is asking of itself or what the original audience would not be asking either. Are you tracking with me on this? So, what is the question that the biblical authors, what is the question that the scholars believe that when we dive into this story that we should be asking? And the question is, why the flood? What is the intent? What is the purpose of the flood? This is a pivotal question in us looking at a story not through the lens that we may have learned it in Sunday school, but more through a lens of what is the Bible teaching us? What is it teaching us about the flood? And there's no way, okay, there's no way for us to get to that question without understanding what's taken place all the way up to this point. In Genesis 1 through 5, we have to dive into it because that's going to lead us to what the intent is. And in order to get to that, I want to show a, a picture of a, of a scene from the greatest movie that has ever been made. Okay, who can tell me what this, what this picture is from? Yeah, got some Gladiator fans. Have, if you haven't watched that, I'm just inviting you into a better life. Um, if you didn't watch this, then, 
and I were to say, let's sit down and watch it, and I automatically go to this scene, right, or right before it, where Maximus, where he kills Commodus, and in doing so, he also dies. And in that picture, you can see that he's walking in these fields to the afterlife where his mother and his son, who have been murdered, where he's walking to them. And if you were to jump to the end of this, you would say, I have a ton of questions, Ben. Does he, is he a farmer? <laughs> Does, where's he walking? Does he need to get his miles in? I don't understand what's happening. There's a bunch leading up to it. And here's my point. Okay? If you look at this, also, if you feel like I've ruined that movie for you, um, y'all had 23 years to watch it. <laughs> yeah. Two decades is how old that thing is. All right, but here's the point. Why the flood? We need to look and see what led up to that point. In Genesis 1, God spoke and he created existence into being. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening, and then there was morning, and then there was the sixth day. Right away, we see what God created. We jumped into this weeks ago, but God created the heavens and the earth. And what was the thing that he said it was? Very good. He intended us then to fill the earth with what? Goodness. And when we saw all that he created and we saw how relationships were going to work, did we fill it with goodness? No, that is then when sin enters into it. And, he, and it enters into it in a most dramatic way. We see Adam and Eve, we see them go against God. And what do they do? They go into self-preservation mode because they start thinking of what's best for them. And then they start blaming the other person, they start blaming the serpent. We read that. Self-preservation takes over. They don't have a care for goodness. They have a care for themselves. And then we see their brothers or their sons and Cain murdering Abel. And Cain gets to a point now where he sees self-preservation and he murders Abel. Again, this is not a care in the world for filling the earth with goodness. It's only what they can do for themselves. Sin spreads generation after generation, stray farther and farther away from God's image and from God's likeness, from his intent, from God's intent of what the world was to be like. Greed, lust, murder, darkness. And keep going on and on these words that just describe this world of its trending downward. It wasn't to multiply with goodness. It was simply to look at a world through self-preservation. It was failed attempt after failed attempt. We know this story well, and I'm wondering, what does that do to us inside? What is it when I'm describing a world that was intended for goodness and it goes in the opposite direction? What does that do to you and I? And then it comes to a new low point. Chapter 6. The Lord saw how great 
the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Let me read that again. Now I want to highlight a couple different words here. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. You and I have been in some really hard times. Okay, and I'm not going to minimize the times that we've been in. But my guess is there were still moments of goodness. This paints a picture of a world completely void of that. Every inclination of the human heart was evil all the time. The author states a level of brokenness that is, gives absolutely no hope whatsoever. In fact, there are words that are, that are used in this description that paint more towards us acting like animals than anything else. It's self-preservation. It's survival. That level of despair, what is the intent of the author getting to a point of saying we were created for goodness, we were to fill the earth, and then piece by piece, relationship by relationship, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and all of a sudden we get to a new low point and everything on the earth is evil all the time. When in your story have you experienced a level of brokenness? Whether it's this or that, it's still subjective and we still feel that level of brokenness. We can, we can relate to what the author is naming. Whether it's loneliness, whether it's addiction, whether it's a broken marriage or a broken relationship. If it's a broken marriage, those words I do, you may somehow forget how deep you meant those words. If it's a broken relationship, it's the fear of walking into a room and seeing that same person, and then it brings up a bunch of anxiety. If it's addiction, you're like, today's going to be the first day that I refrain from it. And then today happens, and you say, tomorrow will be the first day. It's got these shackles on us. And we go into self-preservation mode because we don't know where else to turn. Sorry if I'm bringing you to a place, but I want us to understand that we, we have been in these, these desolate places as well. And there's a purpose for why the author names such extreme language of getting to a point of where society is, what the culture looked like, what we're dealing with here, that it's evil all the time. And then in Genesis 6 verse 5, we read that the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. And that his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe away from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them the animals and the birds and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. You glad you came? Like, take a deep breath. Um, You can see why I was wrestling with this. You can see leading up to this point of what it was doing. Like I'm, this is hard stuff to read. And I want to sit in this moment because we can relate and it causes us to ask really personal and intimate questions. It asks us to ask questions 
of intent. And some of the questions, though, when we read this and we read how desolate it is and we read that, that tone or whatever it is in the Bible, when we read that, we might start asking questions of ourselves of like, am I doing something wrong? Am I being punished? God, are you angry with me and that's why I'm going through this? God, have, this, is, this is the hardest one that I hear. I don't think God loves me anymore. I think he's angry with me and I think he's walking away. I don't think he's looking at me anymore. We get to these places where we start asking some of these questions. And that then becomes the intent of the flood for us in our narrative. But here's where it changed for me, okay? Here's where it changed. Because if we look in the verses that we just read in verses 6 and 7, it says, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings. Okay? Regret seems like this deeply harsh word that we all of a sudden use to disconnect from anybody else. I regret that I was in a relationship with this person or I regret that I am. What it means in our own mind, is that we want nothing more than for it to not exist anymore and just to be completely disconnected because we don't care about it anymore. That's why it's so important for us to look at the Hebrew word of what was used here. Nahem is the Hebrew word. And I want to I read what this actually means in the Bible. Nahem means to be sorry, okay? To be saddened and to suffer grief. If we look, let me look back here. His heart was deeply troubled because he regretted what he had done. He was saddened. There was grief. That doesn't sound to me like anything. What's glaringly missing is what it doesn't sound to me like is that it was an angry God. There's nowhere in verses 6 and 7 that name God as being angry. In fact, the first time that we see God being angry is in Exodus. So all the while, when we see Adam and Eve sinning, there's no mention of God being angry. When we see Cain offering a sacrifice and God being, not being pleased with it, do we see God being angry? No. When we see Cain murder Abel, do we see God being angry there? The answer is no. We may assume God is angry, maybe even picture God being angry. But when we look at the scripture and we look at the word that's being used is that he's sorrowful and he's grieving. And when everyone is evil all the time and violence has filled the earth, when humans have spoiled God's creation to a point where it's evil all the time, we don't see God being angry. What if we've been reading this famous, famous story of Noah through a lens of God being angry and wanting nothing more than to punish those that have sinned, that have created this world full of evil? What if we've looked through that lens? If we read this story through the intent with that lens of an angry God, then it shapes how we view God. It shapes how we serve God. It shapes how we serve others Jesus calls us to love God and to love others. And if we view God as being angry and wanting to punish us for every wrong that we've done, it shapes how we serve God. 
I think that was the pivotal point when we start looking at this story. This was an aha moment for me. And that turn then started asking, started prompting me to ask, what is the intent of the flood? I moved away from anger and punishment that I have long thought that God, even growing up, I think for a number of us, we see this as God, that's God's response to our sin is that he's angry and he's going to punish us. But if God isn't angry or driven by punish, punishing his creation, and if creation is now overcome with violence and chaos, and if mankind now chooses a life, they choose a life based on self-preservation, and they're answering the question, am I my brother's keeper with a resounding no, is it possible that the flood was some sort of mercy? It's a different way of looking at it. The biblical authors ask us to find the intent of the flood. And then as we keep reading and we get into uh, in Genesis 9, we start to see, oh, an act of mercy is a different way. Could that have been the intent? Listen to Genesis 9 verse 1. After they had gone through the flood and after uh, the doors have opened... It says, then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Where have we heard that before? Right away, right? Be fruitful and increase in number. We heard that right away. This is critically important because God offers mankind a new creation. He cares so deeply for his creation that he wants to see it flourish. And he's saying it's only evil all the time. And I want, to I want you to experience a new creation. And then we encounter the first covenant that God makes with mankind. It's a promise of a new creation, one that preserves stability over the earth that will allow his people to grow and to flourish. In Genesis 9, verse 8, we read, Then God said to Noah and to his sons and with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all my life, will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then God says this. This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and earth. I want to hit. Okay, are we you still with me here? I want to hit on the sign of the covenant. When, when, he, when the Hebrew word for, for bow, I'm going to have a rainbow as a sign of the covenant, what that is is kesheth, okay? And what kesheth is, it's really important. The Hebrew people were, were rich with imagery in what they would communicate. And what it meant is a bow and an archer, okay? And so I want to show you how this relates to a rainbow. And maybe you've, you've seen this or heard this before, but there's a picture that I want us to go to. There it is. Picture of a, of a bow. When we see that, we see that that 
is used as a weapon or it's used as a way of protection, right? But then, if we start comparing that to, and we're going to go through to the next picture. There we go. We see all of a sudden how that bow is rich with imagery. And then the next picture, where we show the rainbow. So God's covenant with us, one that you and I can see visibly, one that you and I can live into, it's one that he says, I have a new creation for you. In this new creation, we're not going to destroy the world with a flood. In fact, I'm going to give you something else. I'm going to give you a sign of the covenant that's going to lead to will soon become the Messiah. It's a promise to you and I that we're not going to get to that place anymore because he's always with us. This text, okay, believe me, is really difficult. And maybe it's hard for you too. But I wonder if it's hard for us because when we see this, we relate to some of the sin and the evilness and we know what some of that looks like in our own life. And if we view God through a lens of an angry God, it kind of shapes us on how we respond, doesn't it? Where we might want to go and hide or we don't want to talk to others or we don't want to seek counseling because we don't want to name it. All that's doing is keeping it in the dark and what God's saying is I have something new for you. The intent of this story is to show us that when we choose sin and destruction in our own story and by the grace and mercy of God who grieves and sits with us, he offers us a new life out of that. It's a hard story, but then I start thinking of stories like my own. And I start thinking of stories uh, that I've heard from each of you. I went out to eat with a buddy of mine um, just a couple weeks ago. And I was sitting in the lobby, and he was in class, and so he was, he was getting out of class, and class was running a little late. So I was sitting in the lobby, and I was just talking with this older couple that was there. They were retired. They start telling me about their life, and I was like, huh, sounds kind of nice. <laughs> now you're going to go down to Florida. Okay. And then, as I'm talking with them, my buddy comes in, and he sits down, and I can tell, like, it was a... It was a heavy class for him. And the people that I was talking with, they asked him, they said, hey, what are you studying for? Like, what are you going to class for? What are you, what, what's your degree going to be in? And listen to how he starts. His answer right away was, well, I'm a recovering alcoholic. And I'm going to study to be a counselor so I can help others. And I just sat there and I listened to him. And I just smiled because I know his story. I know what he grew up. I know some of how he grew up with the brokenness and the abandonment. I know how he turned to addiction. I know some of the broken relationships in his life. 
And he shared that with them, and he's allowing me to share his story now because what he wants us to hear is that we serve a God of reconciliation and and redemption. We serve a God who sees a flood and says, that's a bunch of evil and a bunch of destructiveness. And what I want it to do is I want it to wash away from your existence because I created you for goodness. My buddy saw his life and didn't like where it was going. And wondered if there was something else for him out there. And because he did that, because he took the courage to do that, and because he now walks with Jesus, when he looks at his life, he says, I bet somebody else is going through that too. That's not filling the world with self-preservation. That's filling the world with goodness. Because he knows there's brokenness in here, and he knows a flood that will rid all of it. Rid all of that evilness, all of that sin is a better life for them. If you're like me and you've messed up, or you're like the early human beings that have messed up, or you're like everybody else in here that's messed up, I want you to know this, that God is not angry with you. He's sorrowful, he's grieving, and he wants to flood the evil and the corruption and the violence and the chaos from your life because he has something better for you. God wants to redeem you with a fresh new start. So here's my my ask of you this week. Is I want you to really spend time and write down the things that are keeping you from living a life that God intended for you. If it is addiction, or if it's a broken marriage, or if it's broken relationships, or it's a job that is just really hard to get up and go to every day. And you say, is there something more for me? I want you to write those things down. And then I want you to pray about it. What does a flood for those things look like for you and I? And as you pray about it, I also want you to wonder, is anybody willing to walk with me in this? And the answer is a resounding yes, because we are a church that does see the answer of, am I my brother's keeper? We see that as a resounding yes. And if you need to talk with somebody, I'm here. Pastor Scott's here. Abby's here. We have a church full of people that want to walk with you in it. Because we believe that God intended a better life for all of us. Will you pray with me, please? Gracious God, I thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for your message of hope. God, I thank you for your scripture, your word. God, how it's a living, breathing word. And as we dive into it, God, that we wrestle with really hard questions. But God, that the intent, the intent for us to look at your word is to see your character and what you intend for us. And God, I believe that is goodness. God, I pray that as we go forward to, uh, from, from today, God, that this week we are open up to new opportunities, new ways of living, of seeing you and leaning in. And God, we love you and we bless you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.